0: Amen. Go and grab your Bibles and open them to the book of Judges. Turn to the book of Judges. We're going to be looking at chapter 3, continuing a series that we've been going through on Sunday mornings whenever I preach. So I believe a month ago, we looked at Judges chapter 3, verses 1 through 11, as we meditated on Othniel, the first judge. Now we're looking at the second judge, Ehud. As Judges, the sixth book in the Bible, um, Chapter Three Judges, Chapter Three. Verse 12, we'll be reading down to verse 31, and says this. The Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. He gave King Eglon of Moab power over Israel, because they had done what was evil in the Lord's sight. After Eglon convinced the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join forces with him, he attacked and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Palms. The Israelites served King Eglon of Moab 18 years. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he raised up Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed Benjaminite, as a deliverer for them. The Israelites sent him with a tribute for King Eglon of Moab. Ehud made himself a double-edged sword 18 inches long. He strapped it to his right thigh, under his clothes, and brought the tribute to King Eglon of Moab, who is an extremely fat man. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he dismissed the people who had carried it. At the carved images near Gilgal, he returned and said, King Eglon, I have a secret message for you. King said, Silence! And all his attendants left him. Then Ehud approached him, while he was sitting alone in his upstairs room where it was cool, Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And the king stood up from his throne. Ehud reached with his left hand, took a sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into Eglon's belly. Even the handle went in after the blade, and Eglon's fat closed in over it, so that Ehud did not withdraw the sword from his belly and the waste came out. Ehud escaped by way of the porch, closing and locking the doors of the upstairs room behind him. Ehud was gone when Eglon's servants came in. They looked and found the doors of the upstairs room locked and thought that he was relieving himself in the cool room. Servants waited until they became embarrassed and saw that he had still not opened the doors of the upstairs room. So he took the key and opened the doors and there was their Lord lying dead on the floor. He had escaped while the servants waited. He passed the Jordan near the carved images and reached Sarah. After he arrived, he sounded the ram's horn throughout the hill country of Ephraim. The Israelites came down with him from the hill country, and he became their leader. He told them, follow me, because the Lord has handed over your enemies, the Moabites, to you. So they followed him and captured the fords of the Jordan leading to Moab and did not allow anyone to cross over. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all stout and able-bodied men. Not one of them escaped. Moab became subject to Israel that day, and the land had peace for 80 years. After Ehud, Shamgar, son of Anak, became judge. He also delivered Israel, striking down 600 Philistines with a kettle prod. Let's pray. Lord, even when we reflect on this last week, we are here only by your help. We can think of countless Ebenezer's in our lives in which we are fully reliant on you. And even this morning, as we gather to hear your word, we need your help to open our eyes to see and understand your word. So we ask for your spirit's help. We can't do it on our own. We need grace from you. So we ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. This story is almost tailor-made for youth groups. It is amazing. It's graphic. It's, it's gross. It's vivid. It's everything that you'd want to teach to a teenager. Grab their attention, right, Rock? But God is going to use this story beyond the gore, beyond just the violence of what's going on, Because it is a very fun story. And I think part of the reason why the author of Judges goes into so much detail about this story is because it's so much fun. But behind this gore, this irony, this war that happens in this story, is a deeper exploration about the darkness and the disgusting depths of idolatry. Even the helicopters want to listen in. But, quick note, very quickly on verse 31. Why is Shamgar here? Right? There's only one verse on Shamgar. This is his legacy in Scripture. He kills 600 Philistines with a cattle prod. Something you use to hit cattle and make them go where you want. Why is he here? I have a profound reason behind the symbolism of Shamgar, why he's in the passage. Because it actually happened. That's the only reason I have. The reason why Shamgar's in this book, the reason why he's mentioned in a verse, is because this is all Shamgar's known for. And this is what Shamgar actually did. After Ehud comes Shamgar. And if you remember the last time we talked about the book of Judges, we, we meditated on how Othniel was a symbol for the line of Judah that was coming to deliver the Israelites from their sins. And similarly, in this story, as we walk through, we're going to see a deeper symbolism behind what Ehud does with, the, with King Eglon as well. But if we get too lost in the details in terms of the deeper meanings behind it, we can begin to forget that what's happening in the book of Judges is actual history. And Shamgar is here, in a way, as a reminder to remind us that, that this actually happened. Shamgar actually killed 600 Philistines with a cattle prod. Ehud actually stabbed this obese king in such a vivid and grotesque way. And yet, God is even able to take the fabric of reality in order to weave together a tapestry, a picture of what he's trying to do in his entire redemptive plan. So here's the main idea for us this morning, or our main command. Turn away from idols. Turn away from idols. Three points. Or three reasons. Firstly, idols are cruel. Idols are cruel. Two, idols are useless. Idols are useless. And thirdly, idols will destroy you. Idols will destroy you. Start with point one, that idols are cruel. Read with me from verse 12. Israel, the Israelites again did what was evil in the Lord's sight. They gave King Eglon of Moab power over Israel because they had done what was evil in the Lord's sight. After Eglon convinced the Ammonites and the Amalekites to join forces with him, he attacked and defeated Israel and took possession of the city of Homs the Israelites served King Eglon Moab 18 years. Then the Israelites cried out to the Lord, and he raised up Ehud, son of Gera, a left-handed Benjaminite, as a deliverer for them. The Israelites sent him with a tribute for King Eglon of Moab. Here you see the beginning, similar to all other beginnings in this cycle of Judges. The Israelites forget the Lord. They forget the Lord again. And similar to the beginning in verse 7 of chapter 3, they forget the Lord and they're probably worshiping idols as well. And this time, the Lord strengthens another pagan king to take over Israel. He raises up the king of Moab. How does he strengthen this king? I, I think that the way that the Lord strengthens this king, using that language, isn't just like a supernatural power The king of Moab is suddenly turned into Superman or given the powers of Samson. The way that God is strengthening this king is through the alliance that he makes with the Ammonites and the Amalekites. So he gets two other foreign nations, forms an alliance to conspire against Israel. And so the Lord strengthens King Eglon. And Eglon also builds an alliance with the Ammonites and the Amalekites. So did God strengthen Eglon? Or did Eglon strengthen himself? The answer is yes. Behind Eglon's military decisions is God's sovereign plan. And God ordains that Eglon will create his military alliance and ordains that Israel would be defeated. And so Eglon goes forward with his allies and they conquer. And they take over the city of Palms or or Jericho. So you see a little reversal of what's happening here. The Israelites entered into the promised land through Jericho. And now Eglon and his allies are now taking over Israel and setting up their base camp at Jericho. Jericho. The Israelites end up serving this king of Moab for 18 years. 18 years under this pagan king. And then, the author of, of, of Judges points out, and then, after 18 years, the Israelites cried out to the Lord. After 18 years. It wasn't just a polite request. It wasn't just asking the Lord to do them a solid and come help them out. It was a cry of pain. Israel was in anguish. They didn't enjoy being under this wicked ruler. As someone once said, and and what this king of Moab is representing here, is he's representing who their true king is. This is what God does in every single story of the Judges. Whenever Israel falls away to worship other gods, God will then bring another pagan king to overtake them, to show them who their true ruler is. That if they're not worshiping the Lord, then who they're really worshiping isn't God. They're serving a different king. And this king is cruel. As someone once said, sin will always take you farther than you want to go keep you longer than you want to stay, and cost you more than you want to pay. Sin is a cruel master. It holds you. It will not let you go. But if you notice here, the Israelites were under this master for 18 years. So why did it take 18 years? And it did take 18 years. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense for them to be under this cruel master for so long. And the reason why it doesn't make sense is because sin doesn't make sense. Sin blinds you. It prevents you from being able to see clearly. And it took Israel 18 years to even start to cry out to the Lord and ask for help. I wonder what kind of Sins you have in your life, that you justify, that you think about, that you've learned to cohabitate with, you may not notice it, but sin will slowly cover your eyes with a veil to the point where 18 years can go by, and you're not able to realize what a cruel master sin is. Idols are a cruel master. That brings us to point number two: Idols are useless. Idols are useless. Israel cries out to the Lord, and the Lord raises up a judge to save the Israelites. But unlike Othniel, Ehud would be a different kind of judge. Things start to change. He was a peculiar guy. I mean, his name literally translates to, where is the glory? That's a name that you give to a kid if you're expecting his life to be full of mediocrity. Where's the glory? And he was a Benjaminite, which was a super small tribe, which wasn't known for his military ability. Not only that, Benjamin literally means son of the right hand, and he's described as a left-handed guy. So this thing is full of opposites. A left-handed right-hander. right? A deliverer who's pathetic. This would be an unusual deliverer for God to raise up. Let's read what Eglon does, or, or what Ehud does, from verse 16. Ehud made himself a double-edged sword, 18 inches long. He strapped it to his right thigh under his clothes and, and brought the tribute to, the king Egl, to King Eglon of Moab, who is an extremely fat man. Ehud straps a sword under his right thigh and brings a tribute to the king. This tribute would probably be a typical kind of gift ascribing loyalty or or showing submission and blessing to the king. But rather than bringing a gift primarily, Ehud would be bringing, bringing something much worse. In fact, he would be fashioning a custom sword that would be small enough to hide. I don't know if you've seen YouTube videos of people forging swords. It's tons of fun. It's a rabbit hole that you might want to go into this week if you have nothing better to do. Right. You'll see these, these blacksmiths take metal and they'll heat it in the furnace so that it's glowing with, with, with the heat of fire. And then they'll hammer it into shape. And then what they would do is as they hammer it into shape, once it's formed enough, they'll take the blade and they'll slake it into the water. Or they'll dip it into the water which cools it off rapidly. And then they'll put it back in the flame to heat it again and hammer it and and do it again and again and again. So heating it in the furnace, hammering it into shape, and and slaking or cooling this glowing blade into water. And over time, by doing this over and over again, you would fashion yourself a, a sharp blade. You can't rush this process or the blade might shatter. You have to be patient. Keep working at it over time so that the blade can come out sharp and ready for work. Ehud makes himself that kind of blade. The blade would not be one-sided like a hatchet or a blade for hacking things into pieces. Instead, this sword would be double-edged, a sharp, short dagger that would be used to stab. And since he's left-handed, Instead of putting his sword on his left thigh, which is what you would normally do, he would be able to put it on his right thigh. And since Ehud's left-handed, if he were to walk into the palace and they're checking you for weapons, they will be looking at the other thigh. And they wouldn't realize that Ehud is hiding a blade. They wouldn't check there. And what all this shows is that Ehud, in his planning, in his intent, wasn't there to bless the king. He also wasn't there to fight he was there for a methodical assassination. This is where the details of the story start to become fun. I mean, King Eglon is described as an extremely fat man. Extremely fat. And while it's fun to think about this kind of pagan Jabba the Hut who's residing over Israel, there's actually a deeper connotation to his obesity. Eglon's name literally translates to calf. Or a young cow. And so Eglon is being described as a fat calf. And what do you do with a fat animal that's full of beef? You kill it. You get ready to eat. So what the author of Judges is saying is that this king, this pagan king, is ready for the slaughter. And Ehud is about to put on his bib. Verse 18. When Ehud had finished presenting the tribute, he dismissed the people who had carried it. At the carved images near Gilgal, he returned and said, King Eglon, I have a secret message for you. The king said, Silence! And all his attendants left him. Then Ehud approached him while he was sitting alone in his upstairs room where it was cool. Ehud said, I have a message from God for you. And the king stood up from his throne. Ehud reached with his left hand, took the sword from his right thigh, and plunged it into Eglon's belly. Even the fat, or even the handle went in after the blade, and Eglon's fat closed in over it. So Ehud did not withdraw the sword from his belly, and the waist came out. Ehud escaped by way of the porch, closing and locking the doors of the upstairs room behind him. So Ihud comes before the king, and he presents his gift. He approaches King Eglon around the carved images of Gilgal. Before, just before entering the Promised Land and conquering Jericho, after they crossed through the River Jordan, Joshua erected stones in Gilgal as a tribute, as a reminder, as an Ebenezer of all that God had done for them. And now, Ehud was approaching Eglon, not near the stones dedicated to the Lord, but near the carved images. Near Gilgal, he returns at the location where where Israel's loyalty had turned into idolatry. Then he tells the king, I have a secret message for you. And the king sends all his attendants away. This king thinks that it's a good idea to remove every single guard, every single servant, everyone that would be able to protect him against this guy. For whatever reason, the king thought a secret message means that he can only speak to him alone. And that, my friends, is pretty dumb. So Eglon's in a cool room with Eglon alone. Or Ehud is in this cool room with Eglon alone. I'm going to probably mix these names up quite a bit. Ehud then tells him that he has a message from God. That's different than a secret message from an ally or a key piece of intel for prosperity of war. This is a message of defiance. This would be like coming up to the king and naming his number one rival. So the king stands up in outrage and opposition, and Iha grabs his sword and plunges it into the king's stomach. And King Agalon is so fat that the folds of his belly swallow the dagger in its entirety. And after he swallows the blade, the pipes burst. Out of this wound bursts out all of Eglon's waste. The the, the story describes it as disgusting as it seems. It literally reads that his bowels discharged. Basically, Eglon's poop comes out. What would have come out of his body, his waste, was now bursting out of his body. And then Ehud escapes through the porch and locks the door. What do you do with a story like this? Well, Eglon's name has an additional meaning. In addition to being a fattened calf that goes to the slaughter, where else in the Bible have you heard the the noun calf? What does that remind you of? Yeah, Ross, thank you. You came with me for breakfast, so you kind of cheated. Golden calf in Exodus 32. Yeah, golden calf. God saves his people from Egypt, right? In the book of Exodus, God gives Moses the Ten Commandments. And later, Moses goes up to the mountain to deliberate with the Lord. And the Israelites go to Aaron, the priest. And they tell him to make an idol for them. And so Aaron takes all of Israel's gold and he fashions it into a golden calf. And he points to the calf and he tells the Israelite people that this is your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. And all the Israelites bow down and worship this golden calf. Before they ever enter the promised land, not long after receiving the Ten Commandments, Israel already commits idolatry. And they commit idolatry worshiping a calf. Can you see why God would sovereignly ordain this king To rule over Israel in response to their idolatry? God is telling them if you want to worship other idols, fine. Let this idol literally rule over you and let's see how you like it. And now, God is revealing what this idol is really like. Not only is this idolatrous calf a cruel leader, he's dumb. Not only is this idol calf dumb, he's also full of dung. What a pathetic thing to worship. All of our idols are a mirage. They appear to be glorious, dressed in royal robes and flaunting their wealth and power. But in reality, they're worthless. Not only are our idols stupid and worthless, they also make us stupid and worthless. And that brings us to the guards. Verse 24. Ehud was gone when Eglon's servants came in. They looked and found the doors of the upstairs room locked and thought he was relieving himself in the cool room. Servants waited till they became embarrassed and saw that he had still not opened the doors to the upstairs room. So he took the key and opened the door, and there was her Lord lying dead on the floor. So the guards were sent away, and they realized that they haven't seen their king in a while. I suspect that they were used to receiving commands from their king pretty regularly, so uh, considering that their king wasn't exactly prone to physical activity. So they started looking for him. And as they search, they find that their ginormous king is nowhere to be found. And then they go to a room and they find that the door is locked. And what probably happened was they're standing outside the door and they could smell the stench of the king's excrement permeating through the doors. So they look at each other and they figure that the king must be relieving himself. Rather odd location, since restrooms still existed in ancient days, but walking in on their king in an indecent position would be quite bad, and so they decide to wait. And they weigh a little more. And they start to wonder if they should have given the king tums after their meal. And they wait until the point that they're embarrassed. Think about the mental games that are happening to you while you're standing outside that door, wondering how long this guy is taking to use the loo. And I kind of love that they don't give a specific time. They have to wait so long, right, beyond the realm of possibility that the king was constipated or some other thing that would take long for him to be there, that they had to go in and check. And lo and behold, their king was indeed in an indecent position. He was dead. Their guards had faith in their king. They trusted that he would be there for, him, for them. But he was not. What are you relying on? Whatever you find security in, whether it's your word or... Or status, or family, or anything else that you could bank your hope in. Whatever calf you decide to bank on, if it's not Christ, it's going to fail you. Whether it's today or on Judgment Day, you will have to walk through the doors of reality and confront your deficient idol in its face. God exposes Israel's idols to be utterly incompetent. They're dead. They're useless. Brings us to point number three. Idols will destroy you. Idols will destroy you. Verse 26. He had escaped while the servants waited. He passed the Jordan near the carved images and reached Sarah. After he arrived, he sounded the ram's horn throughout the hill country of Ephraim. The Israelites came down with him from the hill country, and he became their leader. He told them, follow me, because the Lord has handed over your enemies and Moabites to you. So they followed him, captured the fords of the Jordan, leading to Moab, and did not allow anyone to cross over. So while the guards are waiting, the assassin gets away. He just walks away, and he escapes all the way to Sarah. And notice, even there, there are idols. Then he sounds a trumpet and calls his fellow countrymen to battle. The image the author of Judges portrays next is that the Moabites are trying to escape from the Israelites because they're getting slaughtered by the masses. And they try to flee through the river behind them. But the Israelites are so powerful, so fast, so deft that no one's able to escape from the river and survive. Look at verse 29. At that time, they struck down about 10,000 Moabites, all stout and able-bodied men. Not one of them escaped. Moab became subject to Israel that day, and the land had peace for 80 years. The Israelites destroyed 10,000 Moabites, and not a single one survives. All of them dead, just like their king. The Moabites are also described as stout and able-bodied. Stout's a bit of a dated word. But what it basically means is that they're big, in a fit kind of way. But the root word for stout, this idea of being kind of built and bulky, is the same root word for fat. In other words, Eglon king of Moab is fat, and so were his people. And just as the king had died, now all of them were going to be subdued by the hand of Israel. You see two different groups portrayed here. On one side, you see Ehud, the deliverer of Israel, and all who are conquering together in the name of the Lord and obtaining victory. On the other, you see King Eglon, the fattened calf, and all who followed him was put to death. What side are you on? Rest assured that there is a war going on. Forces of darkness are waging war against Christ and his people. There is no neutral ground. You are either, either with your idols or you are with God. As we read earlier this morning in Revelation, Jesus will come on a white horse and written on his thigh, the place where his blade ought to be is his name, the king of kings and the lord of lords. No other king will stand before the lord of armies. All will fall. Whose side are you on? But we don't start at neutrality either. All of us start allied to our idols. It doesn't take long if you're a parent to realize that your baby is worshiping a different god. And, the Moabite, and being Moabites ourselves, we all deserve to be killed for our sins. We deserve to be judged for our opposition to God. So what do we do when there is no escape from God's judgment? Well, in this story, there is one more image the book of Judges provides. Eglon's name has a third meaning. Not only does he symbolize a fattened calf going to the slaughter. Not only does he symbolize the golden calf of idols. The third symbol, which Wimpy not be seen clearly until much later in history, comes in Leviticus chapter 4. Turn with me. Judges is the sixth book in the Bible. Leviticus is the third book. Leviticus chapter 4. rather long passage, but it will help us this morning. Because chapter 4, I'll start reading from verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Tell the Israelites, When someone unintentionally, sins unintentionally against any of the Lord's commands and does anything prohibited by them, if the anointed priest sins, bringing guilt on the people, he is to present to the Lord a young, unblemished bull or a calf as a sin offering for the sin he has committed. He is to bring the bull to the entrance to the tent of meeting before the Lord, lay his hand on the bull's head, and slaughter it before the Lord. The anointed priest will take some of the bull's blood and bring it into the tent of meeting. The priest is to dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle some of it seven times before the Lord in front of the curtain of the sanctuary. The priest is to apply some of the blood to the horns of the altar, of fragrant incense as before the Lord in the tent of meeting. He must pour out the rest of the bull's blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering as at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to remove all the fat from the bull of the sin offering, the fat surrounding the entrails or waist, all the fat that is on the entrails, and the two kidneys with the fat on them at the loins. He will also remove the fatty lobe of the liver with the kidneys. Just as the fat is removed from the ox of the fellowship sacrifice, the priest is to burn on the altar a burnt offering. But the hide of the bull and its flesh, with its head and its legs and its entrails and its waist, all the rest of the bull, he must bring to a ceremonially clean place outside the camp to the ash heap and must burn it on a wood fire. Is to be burned on the ash heap. Verse 13. Now if the whole community of Israel errs and the matter escapes the notice of the assembly so that they violate any of the Lord's commands and incur guilt by doing what is prohibited, then the assembly must present a young bull or a calf as a sin offering. They are to bring it before the tent of meeting when the sin they have committed in regard to the command becomes known. The elders of the community are to lay their hands on the bull's head before the Lord. And it is to be slaughtered before the Lord. The anointed priest will bring some of the bull's blood to the tent of meeting. The priest is to dip his finger in the blood and sprinkle it seven times before the Lord. In front of the curtain. He is to apply some of the blood to the horns of the altar. As before the Lord in the tent of meeting. He will pour out the rest of the blood at the base of the altar of burnt offering. That is at the entrance to the tent of meeting. He is to remove all the fat from it and burn it on the altar. He is to offer this bull just as he did with the bull and the sin offering. He will offer it in the same way. So the priest will make atonement on their behalf. And they will be forgiven. Then they will bring the bull outside the camp and burn it. Just as, they, just as he burned the first bull. It is a sin offering for the assembly. What sacrifice does God demand when this whole community sins? He demands a young bull or he demands a calf. And the priest is to use the fat and blood and other organs as part of this sin offering to cover the Israelite people. And that sacrifice, according to verse 20, makes atonement on their behalf and they will be Forgiven. In verse eleven through twelve, you, you see that the entrails and the waste, the poop of this young calf is being taken outside of the camp to be burned and destroyed. Eglon not only symbolizes a, a calf going to the slaughter, he not only symbolizes the the idols that we serve, Eglon serves as a picture. Of the sacrifice that we need for our sin. A need for atonement. A need for sin to be utterly destroyed and for justice to be paid. How is that paid? By taking the picture of Ehud, the deliverer. By taking the picture of Eglon, the idol, and putting them together. God would raise up Jesus Christ as a deliverer for his people. If you're not a Christian this morning, thanks for hanging on. This is the gospel. This is what we believe. This is the main message of Christianity, that God created the world and he created it to be good. But man, instead of obeying him, disobeyed him and rebelled against God. And in our rebellion, we swore our allegiance, not uh, not to God, but to idols, and served other gods. And as a result, because of our sin, we deserve to be slain, just like Eglon. But God raised up a deliverer, Jesus Christ, to save his people. And like Ehud, this deliverer would be peculiar. He would not be born in a palace, but in a manger. He wouldn't speak of a physical kingdom and rebellion to Rome, but spoke of a kingdom not of this world and in establishing his throne he would be hung on a Roman cross outside the camp and Jesus was slain like an offering for the forgiveness of sins. Then on the third day he rose again showing a completion of that payment, rising Victorious over sin and death. If you're not a Christian this morning, I urge you to turn away from your idols and to trust in this Jesus. His blood can cover you. He's died for you. Trust in Him and you can find forgiveness for all of your sin. And did you know that the veil at the Holy of Holies in the Temple of Jerusalem has woven into the fabric and image. I mean, in this tabernacle, it talks about sprinkling blood, right? At at this little, uh, the curtain that, that covers this tent of meeting, of this holy of holies. And if you actually look at the way that this temple is built, woven into the fabric of this veil is actually the image of cherubim, of angels, that are holding flaming swords I'm going to steal, uh, I got this from a podcast called Bible Talk done by Nine Marks and it blew my mind. So I'm going to go ahead and just steal their thunder. In Genesis 3, Adam and Eve commit the first sin. And God casts them out of the garden, kicks them out of God's dwelling place. And sets cherubim, sets angels at the entrance to the garden with a flaming sword to prevent man from being able to enter back in. And this image is woven into this veil that covers the Holy of Holies. Symbolizing that that the Holy of Holies is the temple. That garden. That place where God dwells. Where man cannot enter again. But what happens, friends, when Christ dies on the cross? That veil is torn. The image that is supposed to invoke is that this flaming sword, this this, this symbol of judgment that's supposed to waste away as sinners, is broken. That that Christ, being the atoning sacrifice for sins, is taking the flaming sword on our behalf, paying the penalty for sin, and dying for us. As bad as your sin may be, as harsh of a judgment as you may deserve, if you've trusted in Christ, He has died for you. And that flaming sword of judgment was taken in your place. Christ takes that sword on your behalf. So that instead of death, you can find life. And that you could be granted entrance into communion, true community true dwelling with God himself, and that you may find eternal life in him. I'll close with the words of Anne Cousins as she describes this image of Christ on the cross being sacrificed on our behalf. Jehovah bade his sword awake. O Christ, it woke against thee. Thy blood, the flaming blade, must slake. Thy heart, its sheath must be. All for my sake, my peace to make, now sleeps that sword for me. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that though we deserve judgment, like King Aglon, you've been exceedingly gracious to us. We thank you for the grace of Christ in taking the sword of judgment on our behalf. We ask, God, that this morning, for the rest of this day, that we would be able to rejoice in the good news that we can find mercy with your Son. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take the next few minutes to share with someone around you um, one, of the, one of the things God pressed on you from the passage from Judges chapter 3, and we'll take the next three or four, mon- four minutes to do that, and then we'll close with a song. If you're a guest here, feel no obligation to share with those around you. Just introduce yourself to them and listen in on a conversation, but we want to just talk about what God might have been speaking to you from the passage. So let's go ahead and do that now.